Turn off your mind, relax, and float into the vast catalog of Beatles cover tunes. We'll begin this journey with five unique takes on the Fab Four's music chosen by a savvy selector, longtime media maker, and deep-digging record collector, DJ Jim Granato. What's up, everyone? You're listening to Select 5, a show where you and I get to know some of the most interesting folks from the Bay Area and beyond through five songs that matter to them. My name is Pam Torno. I'm your host. And my guest this time around is an indie filmmaker, a fellow vinyl junkie, and my good friend, DJ Jim G, Jim Granato. Jim has produced and directed many cool projects over the years, from short films to documentaries to music videos for artists like Sunny and the Sunsets and Rogue Wave. Uh, his first feature film, Detour, is a documentary following indie rock drummer Pat Spurgeon as he goes on tour with his band while in desperate need for a kidney donor. And lately, Jim's been working on a feature film with San Francisco budget rock legends, The Mummies. So as the record shows, Jim's passion for film and his passion for music are on par with each other. And I am eager to chat with him about a musical passion that we both share, The Beatles. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Pam. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, I know. And you know what? I know that sometimes uh, my guests have a hard time picking five songs. I would say that you probably didn't make it much easier on yourself because... (laughs) There, the the universe of Beatles cover tunes that you can uh, choose from. Did you have a hard time with this one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, picking favorites um, under the category film or music for me is always a big challenge. Um, five makes it a little easier than one, but yeah. uh, certainly with five, there was e- easily five more that I c- came up with probably minutes after settling on those five or during choosing the original five that I'm like, oh, but wait, but this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, tell me, why don't you tell me why you chose this particular theme? Why, t- or I guess, tell me what the Beatles still mean to you after all these years. Wow. Well, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I will have to say that I, I don't consider myself a Beatles junkie by any means. I certainly have copies of all their official records and and then some, and then there's a few other, you know, uh, bootlegs and whatnot out there that I, I have. Um, I read up a little bit on the Beatles, but I am not some diehard Beatles nut. So some of the information that um, I, in case it comes up, I may not be absolutely correct on, but no, nonetheless, nevertheless, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of rock and roll and, and certainly music of the sixties and seventies and beyond. I mean, there's so much that the Beatles had done for, uh, music in general. I mean, world-class songwriters and the recordings that they had, uh, put together are still, uh, unmatched, um, by, by a lot of things that are happening today. I mean, I think it's, fair or safe to say that most people recording today have some influence by the Beatles. So for somebody, an artist to really take on one of their songs and in my opinion, try to make it their own, which makes a a cover fascinating and great. That's going to be, you know, that's, that's gotta be something to really behold. Yeah. I think I'm kind of like you. Um, I, I grew up with the Beatles music, obviously. Um, you and I are like around the same age. Um, but I, you know, because of the oversaturated exposure that I had to them, like I, I still love them, but I never really get the urge to listen to them anymore. Mm. And so, um, but I do feel like there's certain things that like, oh, it's always nice to be reminded of that kind of, 
I guess, foundational appreciation that I have for the Beatles, like having conversations like this. Or um, I don't know if you've checked it out, but recently I I rewatched or not rewatched. I watched um, uh, it, it's a docuseries on Hulu called McCartney One Two Three. It's literally just Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney talking about the Beatles music, like really diving into the songs. I still um, need to see that. Yeah, yeah, it's so good, and it's yeah. it's so simple. The format is it's literally just the two of them having this conversation, and and Paul McCartney is talking about things about how the songs were recorded and just a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily uh, know, having heard these songs over and over again. But um, do you feel like, you know, because you're, I, I know you and I know what kind of music you listen to and, and how you're just such, you know, like I said, like it's such a deep digger. Do you feel like your Beatles fandom is kind of what spurred your pa- passion for music in general? Yeah. I mean, I certainly have loved the Beatles since an early age. And, you know, when you say you rarely uh, get the feeling of going back and listening to that stuff, um, in my case, and I think a lot of people's cases that you know, uh, are bringing up young ones, uh, there seems to be a point where the Beatles comes up, whether it's voluntarily by me, the parent, or by the child, because they heard something about it. And there's a whole, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, there's been a really fun um, going back period, introducing that stuff to children, because kids really could latch on to those harmonies and those hooks just like we did when we were kids. Yeah, still to this day. I was going to ask, what what does Alex think of the Beatles? (laughs) I mean, currently he's 12 going on 13. So his his musical tastes are rapidly changing, you know, as every day. Um, But he still has a a great respect for the Beatles. And every once in a while, he'll just come up with these random questions about John and Paul and things like that. Or, or, you know, if we're on a road trip, which we were on quite recently, um, I had a I had a collection of Beatles CDs that I just popped into the stereo and we listened to those records again. And there's a certain calm about that music that he and I could both just kick back and enjoy. You know, we could talk about it or we don't have to talk about it at all. There's just something familiar and something that just puts everything at ease. Um, and, and that I think that's great. I think there's a really great sense with that familiarity of that particular type of classic um, that we just so enjoy. Yeah, I, um, I was, uh, in a previous episode, I was having a com- conversation with, uh, Martin Perna, who was the founder of Antibalas, and he was talking about, cause oh. you know, the band does a lot of cover songs. Um, or, I mean, they don't do it. He's, um, directed a lot of, uh, tributes to other artists. Um, but he just made this interesting analogy about like doing cover songs and that there's a certain comfort in, in that it's like putting on, cause these songs have s- such staying power it's like putting on like a comfortable old leather jacket um do you feel like um what is your philosophy on cover songs in general when you listen to them do you do you feel like they have to be completely different they have have to sort of reinvent the song in a way or are you are you okay with songs that are um, more faithful to the original yeah it depends on the song of course but i i mean why covers i mean I'm, i'm fascinated by a really, really good cover tune. I mean, simply put, a cover or a great cover is when an artist takes a really great song and has a vision to put their own stamp on it. I mean, that's basically the the short, succinct version I could come up with in, in identifying what makes a great cover. I mean, a lot of times it's just a total redo, a teardown, a rebuild of the structure. Um, and sometimes it's very faithful and it's just, a, just one thing about it, a voice that's completely different that just changes the whole perspective of that song for me. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so actually, let's get into uh, let's get into your selections here. Um, I want to get into the first one, and I I have these in the order that I think you want them. So the first one we're we're going to play is um, just a short clip. Uh, it's an interesting take on Eleanor Rigby. We're going to play a short clip, like I said, and then you're going to tell us a little bit about the band. Okay, so I have heard many different versions of Eleanor Rigby, uh, but I have never heard this one until you um, until you brought it up. So, Jim, tell us about who the artist is and what is it you like about this version? All right, the name of the band is Zoot, Z-O-O-T. They were a short-lived Australian hard rock band, um, 1969 to 1970-71. Uh, the band featured B. Bertles, who was later in the Little River Band, uh, which was phenomenally successful, especially in the United States. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first Australian bands to be successful in the U.S. Did not know they were Australian. Ah, yes. And But the other member I wanted to bring up that was in the band, the guitar player, is probably the most fascinating to me. And that's a 19-year-old Rick Springfield. Um, 10 years before he was Dr. Noah Cross on General Hospital um, or had number one hits like Jesse's Girl, those kinds of tunes. Um, He's the guy playing this just massive proto metal guitar. I mean, very much in in line or in the zeitgeist with uh, Black Sabbath, I think, in those days. Yeah, yeah. They take that song and make it kind of uh, dark and sinister. Like it's it's this you know, it's already this melancholy chamber pop tune. And then, yeah, they make it, they make it a lot darker. I really like it. I, um, I yeah. also did not know that Rick Springfield was Australian and I feel a little, uh, I, yeah. I, <laughs> like he's someone I, grew up with. <laughs> I think he did a good job probably covering up that accent. And when he really got popular here in the early eighties, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I think you'd have to go and see see some early interviews. I'm sure now that you know, you could you could hear that accent. I'm sure buried in there somewhere. Yeah, I guess now I would be looking for it. So, <laughs> uh, t- how did you how did you discover this version of Eleanor Rigby? Ah, you know that's a great question. I don't really know. I don't remember. Um, I did track down a copy of the 45. It was never released in the U.S. It was a big hit in Australia, though. And this this came out in 1970, right? Just a yes, 1970. So. You know, probably right at the same year the Beatles broke up, technically after they've already disbanded. Um, Of course, so many people were doing Beatles covers before then, by then, and still to these days. But um, in terms of discovering it, I probably heard it on either a random YouTube search for heavy bands of that era, which, you know, that music I like, proto-metal, to to throw a term out there. or, you know, I heard it on a mix on Mixcloud or something like that. I, I can't remember where I heard it. But certainly when I did hear it and I heard the opening before the lead singer even starts singing, because you don't really know what it is. No, you have no idea. Yeah. Until you hear the chorus, basically. But, man, that's that beginning, the, the thunderous riff 
uh, it comes out of nowhere as if we're pulled into the middle of like this huge storm, right? And it, there's something about that power, obviously, in that era of that type of, again, proto metal that hooks me big time. And uh, it's dark, it's huge from the outset, and we're just not sure where it's going. And then it crescendos. And then you're like, what is this? And then everything just drops. And then you hear that familiar, the line everybody knows from that song. Ah, oh, look at all the lonely people. And the, those harmonies, even that those guys, Beeb and Rick, I'm sorry, the lead singer's name escapes me at the moment, but that they provide, I mean, it's, it is glorious. It's, it's kind of there, right? It's, it's not completely dark, but they're surrounded. They're like the calm of this big storm for a moment. And then they go right back into it again. There's just something about the reworking of that, that absolutely wins it for me. Now I'll say that I don't, I, I as a disclaimer, out of all these songs that I picked, do I like any of them better than the original? Uh, I don't, I'm not here to say that I do. Um, there might be okay. one, I, there might be one of these that I can confess to liking better than the original, but you know, I mean, obviously it's all subjective and it's just all great fun just to hear sure, all sure. different versions. Wait, so you are not, you are not declaring that you like this version better than, than the original. I like it. I probably have said out loud to people in the past that I think this thing is better, but honestly, I can't. It, it, they're just so different that I can't really compare them. Um, but I just give the Zoot guys a, a ton of credit for coming up with this highly original take on that song. And a song that's, you know, it's arguably one of the most popular Beatles songs out there. It is. I was going to say that um, I, I was kind of trying to uh, research this myself and see, like, what are the most covered Beatles songs and I was I was convinced that Eleanor Rigby was because I've just know so many like there's so many like soul and jazz versions of this song, yeah. which I think is kind of strange because it's it's a very un unusual. It's just an unusual song. On I happen own. I happen to know the most covered Beatles song. I believe it's still the one today. I mean, did you find out the answer? I did. It's yeah. it's yesterday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the most covered song is yesterday, but I. I believe Eleanor Rigby is in second place. And ah, that to okay. me is just, that's very, um, that's interesting to me. I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know why. I mean, well, I kind of know why, but. Um, I mean, they're both Paul songs. Um, they're, they're, they go straight for the heart. I mean, a lot of, you could say that about a lot of Beatles songs, obviously they're so beautiful. And, and, and the production, the original production was so unique, especially in 1966, uh, the way that they had brought in, a double quartet, which, you know, another thing about Eleanor Rigby and you could lump in yesterday. I mean, not all four Beatles are playing on either one of those tracks too, which is an interesting side note, but for Eleanor Rigby, George Martin had brought in both these two, double quartet and he had arranged all that. And that was brand new. That was a brand new thing to do in pop music back then. So I, it just, I think it just sticks out just like a lot of their albums and songs do from that time period with artists and, you know, again, growing up with it and then having that play over and over again in your head or whatever this case may be, you know, there, there's a there's another talented pool of musicians that are ready to take that on and change yeah. it up a bit. Well, speaking of talented musicians, um, we're going to go into your next selection. This is selection number two. Uh, this is I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I think we all know who the artist is. Let's hear a little clip. Something to you. 
Okay, the Beatles get the Memphis Soul treatment from none other than Al Green. Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and make the declaration that this one is better than the original. <laughs> Jim, do you agree? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, after sort of uh, previewing that little comment of mine a, a while ago, that once this came on, there's just kind of no question. I mean, this this is the ultimate version. Yeah, it's and, and nothing against the original. It's just it, for that time period pop music in 19 late 1963 um when when that the beatles single had came out um i i love it for what it is but man uh just a few short years later you take uh, a young uh soul singer who was just coming up by the, back then um al green who just completely reworks it and really just makes it his own i i don't know how else to really put it he just He's hugging at your heartstrings. I mean, he is pulling you right in with, you know, that whole band. It's just it's just massive for me. Yeah. And he also does a version of uh, Get Back, uh, I think, around the same time. Right. Is that right? That sounds right. Yeah. 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 Um, so kind of a, a little uh, quibble. When we say the song, the name of the song, Conversational, it's I, I Want to Hold Your Hand. But actually seeing it written out and it's I want to hold your hand, it's just really strange to me, especially since uh, I think on the same album, or at least the U.S. version on Meet the Beatles, the original came out on Meet the Beatles, which is the U.S. version of the Beatles' second album. Um, they have I want to be your man, which is spelled wanna. But this one is I want to. And I don't know why I find that very funny, but it just is. Um, tell me, how did you how did you discover this version of the song? A buddy of mine had put this on a mix some years ago, and um, it was a mix given to me around the holiday period. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of uplifting, not not uh, Christmas carols and that kind of thing, but more just more uplifting dance ready jams. And that came on and I must have replayed it. I don't know a dozen times. I mean, I, I had been familiar with Al Green at that point, but for some reason had not heard it because it wasn't available, um, commercially for a long time. I mean, I'd say it's, it's better known these days, thanks to the internet, like a lot of things are, but that was originally cut as a single, um, uh, that I luckily was able to find for a decent price. Now those singles are really expensive, but oh, um, are they, well, I mean, you know, it depends. It's relative how, much money you you would look at but yeah i don't think it's breaking the hundred dollar mark yet but i think it's around the fifty dollar sixty dollar price point so that's a lot of money for a 45 but uh but you know if if you're out in the world playing records um and you'd like to see people dance that's a that's a really great one to get people up and going for sure yeah yeah absolutely we're going to move on to some uh, white album material now. Um, and this is a song that I know really well, not just uh, obviously the original, uh, but the cover song. This is Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Breeders. Jump the 
like I said, the original is from the White Album. Uh, that version released in 1990. Huge, huge album pod uh, in my my college years. Um, and I'm guessing that's probably true for you too, Jim. Yeah, I mean, in picking these five, I, I felt like I needed to pick one from that era in particular. Um, or, you know, actually, I had thought of the Breeders version of that before the whole idea of settling on 1990 in that era. But I mean, it, it, it's just obviously coming of age at that point, leaving high school, going to college or going off wherever, you know, into that great big world. There was a lot of great music obviously happening at that time. Um, and this particular track is uh, one of my favorites, for sure. That whole record is incredible to me. And and it came out, you know, a good three years before uh, their next album, which is what, that was the record that broke them, right? Last Flash, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was after the whole Nirvana thing. So so it's, it's interesting that, you know, that this record was still kind of an, it was definitely an underground kind of best kept secret sort of thing. Yeah, um, I think... Again, um, I guess similar to what Zoot did with Eleanor Rigby, somehow uh, the Breeders' version of Happiness is a Warm Gun feels a little darker and sinister, uh, more sinister. Um, mm. And I think it might be because, you know, that song, it, it's in like three distinct sections, I guess. And then that the last part is they kind of do this doo-wop thing um, it, it, in the Beatles' original. And right, right. I feel like that, in my mind always added an element of comedy to the song. Like you weren't really supposed to take it seriously or something. Um, But the breeders don't do that. So yeah, Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, the, the, with the Beatles version, um, I had read recently that all four of them had declared that to be their favorite song on that particular album, which I found pretty interesting. Yeah. Especially say the likes of George. Like I wouldn't think George would think that was, his favorite, but it, it, you know, that there's some evidence out there supporting that. Um, it's one of my favorite songs on the record. I got to say, cause it's so it's unique. It's very cynical. It's, it is funny. And I think people forget the Beatles were really, really funny, um, yeah. or, or clever. You know, they had their, their sense of humor was very much up there with like Monty Python or the goon squad, that, that kind of comedy that was going on and that, you know, back in the sixties and out of England. Um, in the breeders version, uh, it is puts a smile on my face. It's not. It's. I mean, not, neither version is laugh out loud funny, but puts a smile on my face because Kim's voice. Again, I think this goes back to what I was saying. Uh, a singular voice adds a different bit of color. Um, you know, it, it shifts the song around a bit. Obviously, the instrumentation is is uh, different. It's a little more straight ahead, and it's kind of hard to sell because. To this day and age, we're used to music from that era being sort of quiet, loud, quiet. I mean, that's been a very popular yeah. distinction of music of that era, especially, cre- you know, uh, well, not created by, but popularized by the Pixies, right? Which Kim's, that was where Kim was coming out of. Um, and so with, with you get very much get that trait and the drumming is massive. And that that's thanks to the drummer credited as Shannon Dougherty. But that's actually uh, Britt Walford from Slint mm-hmm. playing the drums on that, who uh, is somebody I admire quite a bit. And it's also been um, recorded by Steve Albini. So people who are familiar with music of that era will know that, well, they hear a, St- a Steve Albini recorded piece of music. They, they're going to identify it 
pretty quickly. And this is certainly one of the best examples. But um, going back to Kim's voice, it's just like this. Um, it, it's like this smaller voice in this big, bad, dark world. There's something about uh, her being not it's not even vulnerable to me but there's something about that quality and she's kind of quite comfortable being in that sort of world if that that makes any sense it does and i i I always love it in a a track when you can hear a little bit of ambient sound coming from the studio you know i don't know if it was intentional or not but you know at the very beginning of the song you can hear the lighter someone is lighting a cigarette yeah yeah so i'm wondering if that's her is she did she actually light a cigarette as she was about to sing the song um, I, I would, you know, I didn't think about that and I definitely know that sound that you're talking about. And yeah, she was definitely a smoker back then. So let's hope she was, <laughs> let's <laughs> hope she was she because, was, yeah. because it is a bit of a, you know, it's intense. I mean, how, how intense is it to like, if you're, especially if you're a band, I mean, the breeders, that was the first record. They weren't exactly known they They were, they were in a studio paying money laying down tracks and trying out an idea and they're taking on a Beatles tune, you know? Um, I don't know what was all involved, but maybe, maybe none of it was on Kim's mind, but certainly to light up a cigarette to kind of get through that song, especially with those three parts, as you were describing, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, whatever, whatever made them decide to do that song, I'm glad they made that decision because that's definitely one of my top Beatles covers too. Um, We're going to go into your fourth selection, which is also from the White Album. Um, And uh, this, I I just, I love the song. I love the original, um, but I I really like what the feelies, it's the feelies doing Everybody's Got Something to Hide, except for me and my monkey. Okay, so that was released in 1980, um, and that is already a really fast-paced song, but uh, they really sped it up even more. They sure did. I mean, that that came out right at the peak of New Wave, uh, punk, post-punk, if you'd like to uh, declare that as your, as your handle for that kind of music. Um, there's certainly a lot of interesting, interesting bands popping up at that time, both, uh, obviously well, all over the place, but America and of course, on the other side of the Atlantic, um, doing all sorts of great things. Uh, crazy rhythms is certainly one of my favorite records of that era. It's unique even to other post-punk records. Um, it's unique in their catalog in general, uh, for people who know the feelies, they kind of after that record came out, they sort of disbanded for a while and they didn't get back together until about 1985 or so. And then their, their different members were involved and their sound had changed a little. And it was a little more earthy and a little more um, what would be certainly known as indie rock or alternative. Um, that was kind of, you know, and, they, and they're, they're, they're great at that. Um, and in this particular record, they were still underground. They were in New York. They were considered, in fact, Village Voice had considered or had named them the best underground band in New York in 1978. Um, they were more avant-garde. I think a lot of that had to do with 
their drummer, Anton Fear, who would go on to play in a lot of avant-garde uh, outfits. Um, so uh, there's obviously this crazy percussion element going on, this polyrhythm thing that uh, the attack of that is just something that's, I think, really brilliant. I mean, the, it just ups the energy even more. Um, it's a lot faster than the original. Yeah. Um, it's just the, 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 the frenetic playing on it is, is, I don't know, it's just so great. Yeah. So, uh, like we said, this album came out in 1980. We were just young kids at that time. How, when did you, uh, first listen to, when did you first discover this, uh, this album and this song? I was in kindergarten. No, um, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I want to say that I had definitely discovered the later Feely stuff first and when it was more or less contemporary, um, when I was in early high school, I suppose. Um, but, but crazy rhythms, it wasn't until much later, I'd say probably early nineties. Um, just when I was really starting to dive into more music of that era. And I have to say that, uh, something I just realized, um, going all of these choices, I don't know so much about the next choice, their final choice, but all of these other choices, um, sort of, you know, represent a particular zeitgeist or moment in time where music was really, uh, there was a particular subgenre or style of music that was young. So with the Zoot, it was like this proto-metal hard rock sound that was pretty young at the time. Um, Al Green's sort of, you know, Memphis-style soul, like fiery attack on on the Beatles' uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, that first single. There's That sound was really maybe not so new, but it was coming, you know, it was coming into its own. And it was certainly before he uh, had... Uh, made some big hits the breeders 1990 that was another right right pre nirvana you know where um the the whole new alt rock generation was coming into its own and then the feelies with its post-punk sort of mark i think that's kind of interesting yeah i agree and i i mean i I guess once again that kind of speaks to the beatles genius right because these are here are these kind of new musical movements i guess and and the bands that are sort of on the forefront and you know what are they what are they still like going back to uh and it's the beatles so yeah it's just crazy um so i um i i think we should also shout out we had talked about this before uh the recording a little bit um uh not too many other people have covered uh, this song. Everybody's got something to hide. Um, but uh, one musician who did is Ramsey Lewis. Hmm. Um, and that is on the Mother Nature's Son album, which I know you know. Yeah, great. And you know, we, could, we could dive into talking about uh, full Beatles covers as albums. Uh, and that's one of the greatest ones for sure. Um, R- Ramsey Lewis, I mean, for record diggers out there, I'm not. I, I'm not a huge. Uh, well, let me let me rephrase. Um, I certainly love soul jazz and and jazz. A lot of jazz on its own, but you know, I am not. Uh, it's there's so much of it that I don't know. And so, like, you know, going out, I know that a lot of those early Ramsey Lewis records were pop jazz of the late '50s, early '60s, and that stuff is great. But nothing that I'm, you know, really need to add all that to my collection. But when I heard his take um on the beatles basically the white album i forget how many what is it about seven or eight songs from the white album on that one i think so yeah the arrangements are great i mean the the recording of it is just so spectacular i don't know what 
it was just really, really well done um, in terms of like the the dynamics involved in the instrumentation. All that stuff is really great. And but his arrangements and his playing, I mean, he, you could tell he is a he was a fan. He well, yeah. So actually, the the arrangements were done by Charles Stepney, um, who produced all of those kind of psychedelic soul albums of that era. And ah. um, I think that uh, I think Ramsey Lewis like was not. Uh, I think Charles Stepney had to convince him to do this album because he didn't he didn't really get the white album at first and it wasn't. Oh, until, really? Oh, yeah, great. yeah, yeah. But um, I just yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting that there's like an entire entire cover albums that like popular artists would do. Um, Booker T and the MGs did uh, Macklemore Avenue. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, George Benson also did uh, an Abbey Road tribute. Um, okay, so we are uh, we're gonna go to your fifth selection, uh, and we're gonna slow things way down. So uh, this is tomorrow never knows, although it really doesn't sound like the original at all. Turn off your man, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying Lay down all thoughts Surrender to the void It is shining Okay, Jim, tell us who's doing this song and why you chose it. Oh man, this is the great late great junior parker um so he was a uh, a, a soul blues singer um originally from the memphis area um he was a harmonica player i believe originally a uh, songwriter i mean his voice is super super sweet uh velvety smooth as i read online about him um sadly he died uh at the age of 39 it was from an operation uh for a brain tumor and that was not too long after that record had come out. So that, I believe that was November 1971. Uh, he used to play uh, the harp in Howlin' Wolf's band in the late 40s. He recorded with Ike Turner. And then he had his own band, uh, Little Junior's Blue Flames, that originally featured uh, Matt Guitar Murphy from the Blues Brothers fame. And, of course, lots of blues records in general. And uh, so the guy had some hits. He was well-loved. Um, but this particular cut, Tomorrow Never Knows, comes from an album called Outside Man. It was released in 1970. And boy, I was listening to this album just yesterday. I, I hadn't put it on in a while. And actually, the, the copy that I have is a reissue from the following year with a completely different cover and a different title called Love Ain't Nothing But a Business Going On. And those that that seems to be the, the, co the copy people will run into if you're lucky enough to even come across a copy. Um, but there's three Beatles covers on there and, uh, he does Lady Madonna, which is great. And tomorrow never knows, which we just heard a snippet of, which is otherworldly. We'll get to that in a second, but he also, I have to admit it. He also does an amazing version of tax man, which I is actually his version the, of tax man. Yeah, I do too. That's the first cut I heard of his before I, I knew about the record or the other covers. And again, it was put on a mix by a friend, um, some time ago. And it was just like, wow. Uh, this is super funky. And that album in general is, um, I can't say I'm familiar with the, the albums he did just before that, but you talk about this 
wonderful like mix of funk soul and blues uh the guy had it he knew how to he knew how to weave all of that stuff together and that record is is a a, a, a big a, well what should, what can i say it just it just sells that idea better than or it's up there with the best is what i'm trying to say so tomorrow never knows um closes the album as it's closing our picks here and Oh, I mean, there's so much to discuss about the original of that song, and so many people have, and I'm not going to go into that, but a lot of people are familiar with that song being breakthroughs in recording and in writing and in and, and touching on all sorts of themes mm-hmm. that really kicks off the psychedelic era um, of, the, of the late 60s in, in England and abroad. Um, but some about Junior Parker's version, again, closes his album. The album is pretty upbeat for the most part um there's a couple of slight ballads on there that are nice um but then you get to the end of the record and you get this super minimal uh, bare bones very flavorful uh version of tomorrow never knows which it's an interesting choice it's like kind of going what you said earlier with ramsey lewis how does an artist coming from a completely different um, area of music, perhaps, or just in anywhere, he listens to that. And then, you know, it takes somebody super talented to hear another version of that song that they could kind of belt out. Right. Um, he strips it all away. And there's a, in essence, because tomorrow never knows the Beatles version is very spacey for lack of a better word or phrase for that. It, junior parker's version is an inner space there's something else going on there that just he just creates a whole universe of his own and i i could listen to that over and over again and it's it's mesmerizing it's it's you know it's on a meditative level for me to listen yeah. to that yeah i hear what you mean i mean the original uh, you know like you said there's there's so much already been said about the original beatles version and just how, you know, all of the experimental, experimental at the time, things that they had done with the the tape loops and the backwards guitar playing, and then they used the Indian instruments. They just layered all of these things in, and it just sounds so uh, psychedelic. And then you have that Junior Parker version, which um, has none of that. And yet, it still sounds psychedelic and meditative, like yeah. you say. Yeah. There's obviously a center. There's 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 the 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 center melody, if you will, of the original, um, which almost sounds. I don't know if it sounds monotone, but it sounds. You know, the the vocal melody is doesn't go too many places. It's just all this other music circling around it. But then there's the Junior Parker version where he just, you know, he and and perhaps it's because i frame it because i know the original so well and have just listened to it over and over again i mean there's still things in the beatles original <laughs> there's still sounds that nobody knows what they are i think the beatles uh, the the surviving beatles even forgot what's made some of those drone type sounds but you know it takes a, a this bluesman this this guy with a real soulful approach to his music with a, with a voice that's like butter um to like hear something in that and just really just kind of knows just to maybe add one or two elements that kind of plays to that that escape effect but then just deliver you know there's something in his personality or something he's seen in his life to know that he could take those same words and that same sort of narrowed melody and just 
completely strip it away and just blow doors with a brand new version of it. I don't know how else to really put it. It's just fantastic. And it really talk about a mood setter. I mean, that's the end of that record. And you're just like, for me, I just want more of that, but you know, and framing and what happened, he dies not too long after that. There's something also punctuating about that as well. So. Yeah. And it's also interesting to me because, I mean, if you think about the Beatles origins and how they even became a band and uh, the musicians that influenced them, they listened to uh, black rhythm and blues musicians from the South. They listened to um, Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And, of course, yeah. uh, you know, they owe a lot to that music. Um, so, you know, to have it sort of come full circle and then you know you have these r&b musicians then covering the beatles um it kind of makes sense it makes total sense when you think about it yeah that's true that's true um so like we said at the beginning of the show you had a hard time uh picking faves or picking the five to talk about um so you have some honorable mentions some runner-ups you want to quickly shout out some of the other beatles covers that you like yes i do um well I think one particular one that, and this this goes for, I, I guess this goes to earlier what I was trying to say about there's a subgenre uh, or a genre of music that dictates uh, just a, another great version of a great song, right? So in this case, I think the soul funk genre um, is delivers so many great versions of Beatles songs, and certainly one of them, uh, well, I, there's more than one on my on my honorable mention list is. Um, uh, we can work it out by Stevie Wonder. We can work it out. We can work it out. What a fantastic! Uh, again, a slightly reworking of that, but you know, coming from uh, just a mountain's worth of talent in one man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to to belt out, you know, such a lovely, lovely, uh, just a lovely version of that song. Um, uh, another one that I had written down that I actually only heard not with fairly recently um is marvin gay's take of yesterday which goes back to you know uh yesterday being one of the most covered the most covered beatles song in in history i had found out that paul mccartney has even gone as far as saying that that might be his favorite cover of a song of a beatles song which I could see why. Go go listen to Marvin Gaye's take on it. It will um, it will make your day, make your night even better. Yeah. Um, Sisters Love, which is a much lesser known group of, um, I'm not sure they were actually sisters, but they were uh, a group of women. They were they come from the gospel background. They they do an amazing version of a song called Blackbird, which uh, again is another famous Paul McCartney pen Beatles tune. add you know this fantastic sort of funk angle to it that uh provides very great danceability but also this gospel um attack on it which is which is amazing um we move back to hard rock with the moving sidewalks that's billy gibbons band before he had uh Oh, um, pre ZZ Top. top. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With I Want to Hold Your Hand Again, um, which uh-huh. is another complete reworking. Hold your hand, baby, baby. I want to 
it's certainly a late 60s psychedelic era it it is it swirls around that um but there's there's a reworking there that he does that's really clever and uh even the melvins um who are very much around today and touring um do that song in in live quite a bit and they do that version of it and it's pretty it's pretty killer and i have to end on honorable mentions with the mummies um a band that i've loved for going on 30 years now and uh, i'm currently working on a feature film project with um doing a b-side call of the beatles called i'm down which is on the b-side of help and is one of my favorite very favorite (laughs) b-sides of songs out there just super energetic uh the mummies just kind of take it and it's almost like a throwaway probably to them i I haven't talked to them about it but it's it's just it's just a super super fun fast-paced song uh that the mummies with their sort of lo-fi um kind of crazy uh irreverent you know approach to it. it it just serves it well that's awesome. I know there's many, many more. Uh, so uh, for you listeners out there, if you want to hear the Beatles in new and interesting ways, uh, we have a playlist featuring the five songs that we discussed, plus uh, the runner-ups that Jim mentioned and a whole slew of others, um, all curated by Jim. We're going to share a link on our website and in our Instagram per usual. Uh, before we go, Jim, any last words? Any cool thing that you're working on? Um, you mentioned the Mummies movie. Anything you want to say about that? You know, it's just that we've been working on this movie for off and on for quite a few years now. Um, and really just more shooting it in the last two and a half, three years. So, uh, you know, COVID had, uh, like with everybody else in the world, was a yeah. giant hiccup and has sort of put a lot of big things on pause. But we are getting back on that saddle and we're continuing to do it. But um, please, if you're interested, check out The Mummies. Check out our, our site, mummiesmovie.com. Um, or my site, jimgranado.com, and, and you could kind of just get another glimpse of what we're all up to in that, in that world. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jim. It's always fun chatting music with you. Uh, and thank you for listening, everybody. And while you're listening, why not show us a little love? Give us a follow, a like, a shout out on the social media platform of your choice. Or, you know, uh, tell a friend the old fashioned way in a face to face conversation if you're still having those during the pandemic. Uh, that's going to do it for me. Uh, until next time, the Select Five crew is signing off. Stay healthy out there, everybody. We'll catch you next time.